Well, this morning we're talking about time and wasting time or using our time wisely and having a life that matters. And a couple of years ago, they put a feature on iPhones called Screen Time, and it would tell you like how many times you pick up your phone in a day and how long you've used your phone and what apps you use the most. And uh, as parents, it's the best and the worst thing that they could have added because now I can see all of what my kids are doing. I can see how long they're using it. I can restrict it so they can't use it when I don't want them to. Um, but also for me, it tells me how many times I've picked it up and all of that. So just for fun, yesterday I looked and I picked my phone up 72 times is what it told me. So I don't know if that's a good number or not, but it feels like a lot to me. It feels like too many and the amount of time that you've spent was definitely way too much. Um, and, but it makes me realize I've probably wasted a lot more time than I think I did because um, things happen and you get a text message and then you check social media and then you check the news and then you just like, oh, it's an hour later, that kind of thing. And I think in quarantine, I've kind of had the similar feeling and maybe you have too. You thought, hey, there's not really a lot going on. I can't really go out. I'm going to get so much more done and projects done around the house and things are going to be great. But those just don't seem to be happening at the rate that I thought they would either. And so it feels like I've had all of this extra time in the last few months, but I didn't get very much done. And sometimes that's not intentional. Sometimes it just happens, right? So is, is that okay? I understand we all need breaks and we all need to recharge and we need time um, just to kind of regather ourselves and get rest. I get that. <clears throat> but how much? And how can we spend more time on what matters, what's important? on what makes a difference. And that's what Peter is going to talk about this morning, is how we can live a life that matters. And so we're going to be in 1 Peter um, chapter 4. We're going to start that today, and so we'll be in verse 1 through 11. And so if you want to turn there with me, um, or if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can follow along um, with us if you're following. And so here we go, verse 1 through 11 of chapter 4 of 1 Peter says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there, al- for there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the Spirit according to God's standards. The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything." To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So we're just going to kind of work through this um, verse by verse and see what it has for us. And so first, I think, in order to live a life that matters is we have to actually prepare for that life. 
And we prepare for that by first arming ourselves. We see that in the very first verse, right? Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. So when he says arm yourselves, he's talking about putting on armor. This is the same word that's used in Ephesians 6 about putting on the full armor of God. And this is probably what we would think about. When you think about arming yourselves, you're talking about armor or weapons or those things like that. But here he says, arm yourselves with the same understanding, right? With something that you're thinking. The understanding really that you will suffer. And so what does that mean or what does it look like? How do you arm yourself with the understanding that I am going to suffer? And so what he's asking us to do is really to put on the same attitude that Christ had towards suffering. That suffering will come and it will come in different forms. But our attitude changes when we know that it's coming and when we understand that sometimes we're just going to suffer. We saw that last week, right? Even if you do everything right, sometimes you're still going to encounter suffering. And when we arm ourselves with the understanding that we will suffer, but that Christ has gone before us and he showed us how to suffer and he suffered on our behalf so that we could endure, we can still follow and do God's will. It's kind of the attitude that you would have as a soldier before a major battle, right? When you're preparing and you know things are going to happen the next day, in your mind, you know, right, there's going to be casualties, there's going to be injuries, things are going to go wrong, there's going to be suffering the next day. But that doesn't deter you from what you're supposed to be doing. You know, I need to fight this battle. I need to be ready. I need to be prepared. And so you arm yourselves mentally to say, no matter what happens on the battlefield tomorrow, I'm going to go out and I'm going to fight and I'm going to do my job because I'm not just fighting for me. I'm fighting for my fellow soldiers and the people who are at home. Right? And so as Christians, it's the same thing, right? We arm ourselves that even if things don't go right, even if things are going to be difficult, even if things are going to be challenging, that we are prepared to do that because, yes, we're fighting for ourselves, but we're also fighting for our fellow church members. We're also fighting for believers around the world and even non-believers so that they will understand who Christ is. And so that's what he's talking about, really, that, atti- that the mental um, ascent or attitude of put it, saying, I'm ready for whatever happens and I'm still going to do God's will no matter what. We just keep pushing forward. He also says that we prepare by rooting out sin. He says, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. And it takes a little bit of work to get to this one. So it's not saying that you will no longer sin. That one day when you've suffered enough or you're mature enough or you learn enough scripture that you won't sin anymore. Um, We believe that that only happens after you die. So... You won't be completely free from sin in this life. And just two things really quick on that. That means if you, even if you are a believer and you're still in sin or you still find yourself doing the same things, there's still hope for you. All is not lost. But if you think as a believer that you're not sinning anymore, then you're missing something or you've got some work to do, right? Because this says we will not be without sin, Because remember that when you become a Christian, what happens is you sever the hold of sin on you, and the power and penalty of sin is overcome and removed, and that's possible through Christ who conquered sin and death on the cross. And so what Peter is saying is those who put on the attitude of enduring suffering, of saying, I'm going to do God's will no matter what, are essentially saying, I'm choosing Christ and following him over choosing sin. 
So essentially saying, I'm finished with sin and I'm only following Christ. I've put this behind me, I left it behind, and I'm moving on. Because when we choose Christ, it signifies that we're no longer ruled by sin, but we're ruled by Christ in our lives. And in that sense, you're saying, I'm done with these worthless, fading pursuits, and I'm going to chase what matters, what's important, what Christ has called me to do. And so if we're finished with sin, then what do we live for? And he gives us that in the next verse, verse 2. We prepare ourselves by living for God's will, right? In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. So we're living for God's will, and he's contrasting two different ways of life, right? The way of the Gentiles, which means sinners or non-believers, and the way of following God's will, who are those who follow him completely. So he's calling believers to live out the rest of their lives following God's will, not their own desires. And you can't serve both, at least not at the same time. You're either serving one or the other, right? You're serving Christ or you're being ruled by sin or serving your selfish desires. But that's what the Christian life is all about, right? We continually battle and fight and seek God so that more and more every day we follow God's will than following our own will. It's the process of being made holy, of being made like Christ, that we continually push forward to become more and more and more like Him. So that's what we do. We set our minds to follow God, and we just keep marching forward day after day after day. And so we prepare ourselves for the life that matters because how you live matters. It makes a difference in how you live, because sometimes we do spend time on worthless things. We see this in verse 3. There's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. And remember, he's talking to believers here. So he's reminding them of their lives before Christ saying, before you came to Christ, this is maybe what your life looked like. Now, some of us, and me in particular, got saved at a young age, so I didn't really do any of these before I became a Christian. Some of you may struggle with these anyway. What he's essentially saying is, you've wasted enough time doing what you wanted. If you look back at your life before Christ, you might say, why did I wait so long to become a Christian? Why did I wait so long to follow him? Why was I doing all of these worthless things when life in Christ, which is way more fulfilling, was out there? Why did I just waste it when there was something much better available to me? And so what you may say is, if you're listening and you're not yet a believer, you may be saying, well, what I'm doing isn't that bad. I'm doing some of the things on this list. It's not that bad. It's not really hurting anybody. I have it under control. But I think if you ask yourself deep down, is it satisfying? Is it fulfilling? Is it lasting? Or do you think next weekend I've got to do this again, or I've got to do more, or I've got to go over the top of what I did last weekend because it just wasn't enough? And it's this never-ending search for fulfillments. And you come away lacking. And so, the other interesting thing to me is, if you look at this list, it's not that much different than the list that we would make today of what people are struggling with. <clears throat> and so, we think in 2,000 years later that we're so far ahead of what was happening 
in 2,000 years ago, but this is the same list we would make. So I just thought that was interesting that people are struggling, people are tempted by the same exact things that was happening 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> the other thing he wants us to understand is that if you change, people won't understand. <clears throat> we see this in verse 4. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. <clears throat> Your friends who knew you before you came to Christ, if you came to Christ at a later age, they're going to be surprised by the way that you live, or they should be surprised by the way that you live. <clears throat> if you're a believer in Christ, the people around you should think, hey, this person is living differently than how I am living. And it seemed odd to me when I read it that he's basically saying they're going to slander you for doing good things. Right? Usually it's the other way around, that they slander you because you've done bad things or it looks like you're doing something bad. And so people point that out and they say things about you that may or may not be true, but usually those are, have a negative connotation. But this is saying, right, you'll be slandered for doing good, for living the way God intended for you to live. And I thought that was strange, but then I realized this is actually what's happening right now, right? How many of us as Christians have been watching something on TV and they talk about evangelicals and how um, they don't understand or they're not forgiving or they're judging people of certain lifestyles or sexual orientations or they're anti uh, our stance says being anti-abortion means we don't value women's rights. And so all of these things, they leap, hump, they pile on top of us because people don't understand our worldview and what we're trying to accomplish and what we're trying to follow. And so we get slandered sometimes for that. And so my hope is we would say, well, that's not fair because we're not really judgmental. We think we're being loving. We'll think we're being faithful to the truth. And so it's not fair for people to call us that, for the media to lump all of us in together because there's just some bad examples out there who are doing things that we would never do. And so we would say the answer would be for someone to come and talk to us in person and ask us why we believe that or how we think it's important or why we value the things that we value. And, but for us as Christians, I think the opposite is also true, is that we do the exact same thing with people that disagree with us, is we lump them all in one category, and we put them all together with these, sometimes these stereotypes, because of what we've heard through the grapevine or from a few bad examples, but I think the same is true for us, that we need to approach them, we need to reach out to them to understand their viewpoint and where they're coming from. Because it isn't until they feel like you understand them that you can have any inroads with the gospel. Right? They want to know that they are heard and understood and that you know why they believe what they believe. And then you can see openings and doors to present the gospel and the truths of Christ into that. And so our goal is we move towards them, not just to make them understand us, but first to understand them so that they, in turn, will listen and understand us, because they don't understand. It's also important how you live, because you will give an account. 
See this in verse 5. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Essentially, everybody's going to give an account. <clears throat> We're going to come back to that um, in a couple of weeks of a little bit more about what that means. But Peter is basically saying how you live matters because you will give an account for how you lived. We've seen this throughout the letter that the just judge one day is going to make everything right. He's going to set everything the way it's supposed to do. He's going to right all wrongs, deal with all injustices in one swoop. And so he will come through and people will be judged and you'll either be found lacking or you'll be found holy and righteous. And all of us on our own, if we take what we've done in our lives and we hold it up before God, he's going to look at it and say, that's not enough. That's not good enough. That's not going to get you in. And no matter how hard we try or how good we think we've been or how much we've done, it's not enough. We could never do enough for God to let us into heaven. The only way to get in is through the Son, through Jesus who lived a perfect life and went to the cross undeservedly. And he died there for us, for our sins for our mistakes, for our wasted time. And when we trust in Him, then His perfect life, His righteousness becomes ours. He gives it to us freely when we trust in Him and believe in Him, and we are seen as perfect. And then when the just judge looks at us, he sees the perfect work of Christ in us. And that's what gets us into heaven, not our own works. And then in the verse, after that, in verse 6, we kind of have another strange phrase. We ran into one of those last week. It says, he preached to those who are now dead. Um, There's several options on this one as well, but I think the most likely one and the one that fits with the other verses in Scripture is that Peter is referring to believers who had previously heard the gospel and they believed the gospel and they're now dead. That though they suffered judgment in their earthly life, right, and they have died, and some of them were killed for their faith, they will enjoy life from God in the spiritual heavenly realm because of the gospel. I'm going to make the same point that I made about this last week, is it doesn't mean there's a second chance for you after you die, right? That's not what this is saying, right? We need to decide now who we will follow. And so if how we live matters, then how should we live? What does that look like? What are some things we should be doing? So how can we glorify God with our lives? And Peter gives us a list of things here that we can do to live a godly life. Right, first he calls us to pray. He says, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded for prayer. First of all, he says, essentially, pray like the end is near, like God is coming back, like the world is ending. Pray with urgency, pray with passion, pray believing that things will happen, almost desperate for something to happen. And John Piper, in his uh, book on missions, it's called Let the Nations Be Glad, that a lot of people have read, he he refers to prayer this way, he calls it a wartime walkie-talkie. Right, that essentially you're a soldier on the ground and your lifeline is that walkie-talkie talking to your commanding officers, telling you where to go and what to do. 
so that you can survive, so that you can make the right moves, so that you can take the right steps, so that you know where the dangers are because they can see what's happening better than you can see. And so if we treat prayer like that, like I need to speak to my commanding officer so that he can save my life, he can direct me, he can get all of us together on the same page, it gives us some urgency, gives us some passion as we pray. He also tells us to pray alertly, right, to be watching for things that we can pray for in the moment. And so an example of this, just to maybe you can use this, is um, potentially to, as you're driving, I know we all don't drive as much as we used to, um, but someday we will drive again. But while you're driving, just use billboards that you see as you're driving as cues for what to pray for. I did it on my drive-in this morning. It was interesting. But when you see billboards for pregnancy or for the children's hospital, pray for your children or pray for kids. If you see um, billboards for divorce or for home care or for pest control, which seem to be a lot in Austin, um, pray for your marriage. If you go by a hospital, pray for health. If you see billboards for lawyers, pray for peace right? Because that's what we really need. We don't need more lawyers. We just need peace, right? And so those are things, some things you could do. Like I saw a, for some reason, there was a Rolex billboard for a watch company. And I was like, well, then I can just pray for my time and how I use my time, which was appropriate because that's what we're talking about this morning. So use billboards, use things like that that you see in your life as cues to keep you alert and praying for things around you. And also, when you say, I'll pray for you, like we do sometimes, why not just pray for them right then and there? Don't wait. Don't think I'm going to remember. Don't think I'm going to write it down. Just say, hey, let's take 30 seconds. Let me just pray for you right now in this moment. And I know even I can improve in that area for sure. But he also tells us to pray seriously. Be sober-minded about your prayer. Be intentional. Be disciplined in when you pray. Have a set time set aside where you say, I'm going to pray every time at this day, no matter what else, at this time on this day, no matter what else is going on. To be creative about it, to pray creatively. Maybe read through scripture or read through a psalm and use that to cue you to how to pray. So pray like the end is near. He also calls us to love one another. We see this in verse 8. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Right? Love covers sins. So the way that, that I think about this is um, someone that you love can do something that someone you don't love can't do. They're not going to get away with it. Like if you're eating a meal and someone you love sticks their fork across the table and takes some food off of your plate, you might be like, what is going on? Right? But you're not going to get angry at them because you love them, and you're like, oh, that's sort of okay. It might be weird for you, but that's fine. But if some stranger comes by and sticks their fork on your plate and takes it away, you're going to get a totally different reaction. Right? You're going to be upset. You're going to be angry. You're going to be like, what are you doing? Right? It's a complete different reaction because you don't love them. Right? So a mistake that a loved one makes will be treated completely different than someone that we don't love. And so when we love other people, we are able to forgive. We are able to look past little things that may happen here and there. And so loving each other covers up the little things that sometimes cause friction or cause pain. And so they're forgiven and quickly forgotten. 
He also calls us to be hospitable in verse 9. So be hospitable to one another without complaining. This means essentially inviting people into your home or into your life or sharing things with them. And I think this concept is important. I know right now it's a little interesting to talk about hospitality when you have to be really creative in how to do that. Um, but I think the, the concept to me behind this is it's, it's important to get people to remember that people matter more than things. Right? When we stay at home by ourselves and we have our house with our garage door and our fences and our locks and our alarm systems, it's essentially us protecting ourselves and all of our stuff. But when we invite people into our homes, it's a reminder that all of the stuff we have is not just for our good, but it's for the good of others. It's to encourage and to help others, to use to serve them and to feed them and get to know them and to pray with them and to walk with them. And so when we do that, when we use our things for others, it changes our mentality and how we use them. Because I I realize even the things that matter to us are tied to people. Right? This is my mom's dress or my grandmother's vase or my brother's t-shirt. Right? All of those things are important to us, not because of the thing itself, because it's tied to a person that we love. And so being hospitable, sharing what you have, using what you have for others helps us remember that people are more important than our stuff. He also calls us to serve others. In verse 10, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. So first, each person has been given a gift. Everybody in our church, every believer is given a gift by God. So there's no excuses. You can't say, well, I don't have any gifts. I don't have any way to serve the church, right? God has given you something to use in serving the church, and your gift is given by God's grace. It's given to you freely, just like salvation. And we use those gifts to serve God. We see this in verse 11. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's word. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. And so our gifts are not only given by God, but they're being used for his purpose and his glory through his strength. The gift that you were given was not to make you look good or to get acclaim or to make you famous or to make people think about how great you are, how spiritual you might be. It was given to glorify God. That's the purpose of your gift. So God gives you also everything that you need to use your gift If you look at this, first he gives you the gift itself, right? All gifts are from God. Then it says he gives you the power to use it. If you're speaking, speak as somebody who's speaking God's words, the words that he has given you. If you're serving through the strength that he provides, he's giving you the strength to use your gift. And it brings glory to him when you use your gift with his strength in his power. And so when you go all out, when you use your gift to the fullest, it brings glory to him, and so you go for it. So like for me, and this is sometimes challenging, and I try to balance this, but I want to do everything I can to preach God's word clearly and effectively, not so people will think I'm a good preacher, or so that I can be famous, or that I can have a top podcast or whatever it is, but I want to preach the word effectively because the way that I use my gift brings glory to God. 
The way that I prepare, the way that I preach, the way that I speak brings glory to God if I use it in the way that he intended. And so using my gift to the fullest of developing it and using it and growing in it helps glorify God because people will look and say, look at how great they are at doing that. And you can say, I can only do this because Christ has empowered me. He's given me this gift. He's given me the strength to do it. He's given me the words to say. He's given me the passion to use it effectively. So I want God to get the glory in everything that I do. And I think that's kind of the summary of everything, which is what he says in the last verse and kind of how we're going to pull all of this together. It's to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So that God is glorified through Christ in everything. In everything that we do, in being hospitable, in praying, in loving one another, in using our gifts, that God is glorified through Christ who enables us to live that. All we need to do is to glorify the one who created us, to glorify the one who saved us. And we can give up those worthless things. We can do what matters. We can do what makes a difference. And we can do that by rooting out sin. We talked about this at the beginning of overcoming sin through Christ, of trusting in Him and giving our lives over to Him, and then being um, through the Holy Spirit to understand where we're sinning or where we're trusting in other things or where we need to seek Him more and following through on that. So instead of saying, I'm going to do what I want and doing time-wasting things, that we would do things that matter, that God desires for us to do. And so we seek to live out God's will that is discovered through his word and through other believers, that as we read his word on a regular basis, it shows us how we should live. It shows us how we can love others. It shows us how we can care for them. And even other believers who encourage us and say, I see this gift in you. I see this talent in you. You should use that. You should try serving in this way, that we encourage one another to use our gifts for God's glory. And then when we do all of that, the end goal really is to glorify God in all things, in everything that we do, no matter what it is, that we realize that we are only doing it to give God glory because He has created us, He has given us salvation, He sent His Son to live the perfect life so that as we trust in Him, we could have righteousness and salvation. And that motivates us to follow him and glorify him. Say, I do what I do. I want my life to matter. Not so that I can be in the history books, but so that God's name will be known to those around me by the way that I live. You guys pray with me this morning. God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for a chance to gather together and to hear your word and to maybe reevaluate and look at how we're using our time and what we're called to do, even in a, in a situation where we think we maybe can't do the things that we used to do, but there are ways that we can be creative, that we can love one another, that we can be hospitable, that we can pray for one another together. So I pray that you will help us to, to look at our lives and trend towards serving you of doing things that make a difference that make an impact just little things here and there that would change what we're doing 
It'll change the trajectory of our lives and through that, the trajectory of other people's lives as we encounter them and share the message of hope and salvation with them by loving and understanding and seeking them out. So God, I pray that we would use our gifts, we would use the blessings that you've given us for your name, for your purposes, so that in the end, your name will be glorified, that the nations will praise you. In your name I pray, amen.